Hey, what's up, everybody, to uh, the Sacramental Charismatic. Welcome, welcome. My name is Luke Garrity, uh, and we're on season two. We have just started season two. This is the first episode of season two. Uh, I think it's been about a month and a half since I've been uh, been able to podcast. Um, and if you are tuning in sometime in the first few weeks of January, you will know that last week was absolutely insane, crazy, uh, the political unrest, uh, that happened when a group of American citizens were armed and broke into the Capitol building. It's actually like uh, saying those words out loud uh, is is insane uh, to me because it's so uh, something that I never thought I'd ever see. Um, but I know people are angry and people are other people are confused and people are grieving and feeling overwhelmed. Um, and there's a lot of people that are really concerned. And I know that on social media, uh, we have seen a huge exit of people on certain platforms. Uh, and then other people are going to other platforms and political dialogue is being more and more radicalized. And so I thought we could have a conversation today on this podcast about politics a little bit. And I want to do it from the perspective of what is the church's role in politics uh, Politics, and uh, just kind of explore that a little bit. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about on today's podcast. But first, I wanted to give a, a quick update on a few things in my own life as to why I have not been able to podcast quite as much as I've wanted to. But uh, my first you know, response has always been that I'm trying to pastor a church during the middle of a global pandemic. And uh, that is the craziest thing uh, I've ever had to do. Um, it's also been pretty nuts trying to pastor a church in the middle of the craziest political environment I've ever seen in my life. I'm only 41, so I'm sure maybe you can get crazier uh, by 60, but uh, that's been pretty challenging. Uh, but actually, the last uh, month and a half, uh, my wife and I have both been really going through some crazy, um, challenging, difficult stuff in our families. My dad uh, has uh, has been diagnosed with stage four cancer, and uh, so I've been going and traveling back to Minnesota to spend time with him uh, and just trying to care for him as much as I can, and then my wife's uh, grandmother is uh, kind of nearing the end of her life um, due to cancer and, and uh, in her age, too. So anyway, it's been a pretty rough, uh, rough last two months. But I'm really excited about this year because I entered into the year uh, really wanting to press into the daily rhythms of scripture reading and prayer. And so I am uh, consistently in the daily office of uh, the Book of Common Prayer um, and also a couple other different reading um, programs and uh, whatnot. So I'd encourage you to uh, to get into that if you are not in one. And I'm going to actually include a link to some really great resources and books that might help your um, your daily rhythms, your habits to be able to center yourself on Jesus and the kingdom. And so I'm going to have some of those uh, in the description area too. Um, but another, another thing that I've been really wanting to do more of this year was get back into writing. And so I've started blogging again at my website, which uh, I kind of am returning to it after a long hiatus of four years because I started pastoring in a new church and that has been crazy. So anyway, that's that's the new plan. But anyway, let's get on for tonight. Uh, it's tonight for me. It's morning for my guest. And I'm really super excited about uh, today's guest. Uh, he's a hero of mine. Uh, he might not know that, but I have uh, Alexander Venter with me. And Alexander Venter is 
hailing all the way from South Africa. And uh, we're going to welcome Alex in a minute. But uh, Alexander is a, an author, a theologian, a, a pastor. Um, this book right here is a book that he wrote uh, called Doing Church. And I cut my teeth on this book. I want to say it was around like 2000 or so when I was in the Bible college. My parents had this book. I stole it from my parents. I read it. And I thought it was uh, probably one of the the best introductions to ecclesiology from a pastoral, practical. It was basically how to do a church. So everything I learned uh, was from this book on how to do church. And so for those of you that think I've been a terrible pastor, it's Alexander's fault. For those of you who think that I'm a great pastor, Alexander had nothing to do with it. Uh, I came up with all that on my own. But thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight and in the morning, Alexander. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Luke, for having me um, um, on this uh, live platform. And it's an honor to be with everyone who will be listening to this and to have this dialogue. So I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. It's just, it's an honor. It's an honor. Um, You've also written a number of other books, and I just want to mention those really quickly. Um, You've written a book on healing, doing healing. Uh, yep. You wrote a book on reconciliation, and I think it's doing reconciliation. Um, That's correct. Right? Yeah, I have that in my Kindle, so I, I don't have that in front of me. But uh, And then you also have a book called Doing Spirituality, which is fantastic. Um, and I have been telling you on Twitter for a long time you should do a book on how to do theology, doing theology. <laughs> that'll, that'll be your, your next one. Um <laughs> But you, you have just been a huge influence in my life, and, and I'd love to hear, you know, so uh, just maybe a little bit about yourself for any of our listeners or viewers who, you know, are maybe unfamiliar with your work. Um, you know, I know you were a vineyard pastor, and you, you're a vineyard theologian. Like, maybe give us a, a brief rundown on your bio, as well as like, you know, uh, maybe you're, you've got kids, all that type of stuff. We'd love to hear it. All right. No, great. Uh, so before I just introduce myself, can I just pass a comment and say, listening to your introduction uh, in terms of your life context with, as a pastor with COVID and family, and it's, is it your, your mother-in-law with, with cancer? That is- uh, my, my, my father-in-law, or my, my father has cancer, and then my, gran- uh, my oh. wife's grandmother. Yeah, so grandmother-in-law, yeah. So listening to all the stuff on your plate, I feel for you. God bless you. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, ha- being on a platform like this, without that sense of personal connection, it just becomes a mechanical exercise. So I just want to respect what I hear from you and pray mm-hmm. God's blessing and grace upon you and your family and all that's happening at this time. Mm-hmm. So look, from, from my uh, f- from my brief journey side, so I was born as a, um, a, a white South African under apartheid South Africa um, in a non-Christian home. My parents were, were non-religious. My mother was born in Germany, raised in Germany, survived the Second World War and um, in Berlin. So I'm half German. And then, of course, post-Second World War, my mom came out from Germany to South Africa, met my dad, and they married. So I've got an older sister and an older brother than me, but I'm deeply conscious of the fact that I'm half German and my mother and her mother, my grandmother, told stories of Adolf Hitler and Nazism and uh, what happened um, in the war. 
So as I developed as a young white South African living under apartheid, my consciousness slowly but surely was open to the reality of my own deep conditioning as, um, um, as a white person born under apartheid. In other words, racism, structural racism, personal prejudice against people of color. So I had a long journey in, in developing that sense of awareness and that was part of bringing me to faith in Jesus at the age of 13. So I got born again within a Baptist church context. And uh, uh, that a year later, a guy at school laid hands on me from the Assemblies of God Church. And I spoke in tongues. He said I needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And then that led me to join the Assemblies of God. Mm. Then when I completed my schooling... Um, and I had to go on compulsory call-up to the South African Defence Force and do a year's compulsory service that further made me aware of the apartheid war that we were fighting against the supposed onslaught of the communists. And uh, that further awakened me to um, um, uh, understandings of Christian discipleship in terms of, uh, of uh, political engagement, national engagement, Etc. But then what happened is when I finished the army, my army service, um, I was invited to become a young Assemblies of God pastor. So for six years, I served in the Assemblies of God as a, a church planter. I planted <laughs> my first church in uh, Rhodesia that then became called Zimbabwe at the age of 21. And then I met John Wimber. Well, first of all, I met Lonnie Frisbee. So I went into the ministry in January 1975. I met Lonnie Frisbee in 1979. Lonnie came out to South Africa, and a friend of mine phoned me and said, would, would I like for this, this young ex-hippie Californian to come and preach at my church? And I was then pastoring an Assemblies of God church in Cape Town. So I knew nothing about Lonnie, and I said yes. And Lonnie came and just shared his story and then apologized to the Holy Spirit for um, basically ignoring and neglecting the Holy Spirit and repented and then invited the Holy Spirit to come. And then all heaven broke loose and there was holy chaos in our church. And that really changed my mindset as a Pentecostal. I mean, I thought I'd seen the phenomena of the Holy Spirit as a Pentecostal because we prayed for the sick regularly. I'd driven out a number of demons, um, uh, or etc. But uh, so through Lonnie, I said, well, where do you come from? And then who's your pastor? And then it was John Wimber. 1980, I went over to the U.S., met John Wimber, and then helped together with two colleagues to organize a conference in South Africa where Wimber came with a team. And then as a result of that, I resigned the Assemblies of God in 1981. By John Wimber's invitation, went to work with John in, um, in your Belinda Vineyard for eight months as a kind of an intern and a research assistant. So together with John, because I had done theological studies and was still busy doing theological studies at the University of South Africa, which is an institution that does education by extension, but academic um, degrees. So then so I wrote with John uh, a number of documents and seminars that he taught. And then we, then when we came back after eight months to South Africa, we planted the first vineyard church in Johannesburg together with a, co a, a colleague of mine, Costa Mitchell. 
who then later on became the the national coordinator of the vineyard in um, in South Africa. So I've been a vineyard pastor since 1982, but uh, just maybe to finish off the story, um, Luke, and then we can get into the other parts of the discussion. But when I was with John in Southern California in uh, 1982, and we were planning the trip in November 1982 to come to South Africa with a team uh, to plant the church, um, I kept saying to John, you know, John, if we plant another, like, white, middle-class, suburban, evangelical, charismatic church in South Africa, we'll be part of the problem of apartheid and not part of the solution. We need to think about planting a, a multiracial church um, that is engaged across the divides in our society for kingdom witness sake or else we'll be, again, a copy, a more copy of a apartheid society than a model of kingdom come, a foretaste of the future society of God around the throne of all people, all nations, all languages reconciled as one kingdom family. Uh, that's what we need to do. But what happened is we planted the church, a team of 82 young Young Southern Californians came out with Wimba and Bob Fulton and Tom, uh, uh, Sam Thompson and a whole team. But after a year of having planted the church, I looked around and there we were all dressed the same. We smelt the same. We spoke the same. All middle class suburban white people. And I experienced the repentance in my heart. I said, oh, God, I can't continue to preach white sermons to nice white people to maintain nice white lifestyles in the context of tremendous division and pain with um, apartheid um, and the people who are suffering. So then I went and got involved in Soweto, and Soweto is the big city um, uh, uh, right cheek by jail right next to Johannesburg. So Johannesburg had 1.5 million white people built on the gold rush, symbolic of white power, white wealth, and white gold. Soweto is the big black city of three million black people. It was the labor pool for our white economy to basically serve us. And they were like, they were down in the mines digging out the gold that served our basically lifestyle. So I crossed the divide in those days. You had to have a permit from the government from, or for a white person to go into a black area. And I, I did conscientious objection. I didn't get any permits, permission, nothing. I went into Soweto from 1983 onwards just to seek <laughs> to repent from my deep conditioning as a white person born in South Africa in systemic racism. And uh, only then did I begin to realize, in fact, how deeply conditioned I was. I had no idea how my lenses and my worldview <laughs> was evangelized and uh, a reflection of the dominant consciousness of uh, white superiority and, and white supremacy. So, Luke, it was, just, it was just a very emotional, intense, transformative time for me because when I went into Soweto the first time, uh, 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 I was lecturing actually at a at a part-time Bible school, I was doing a week. I was invited to teach a week on, on kingdom ethics. 
And I was advocating in the class where there were 24 white students and there was just four black students, which even in those days was unusual for black students to be in a, in a Bible school. And I was advocating that kingdom ethics would helps us to evaluate political ethics, economic ethics, social ethics, sexual ethics, and ecological ethics. And in terms of political ethics, we must work against the apartheid and work against racism and repent from it and seek to be justice advocates, not for any party politics, but for King Jesus' sake and human dignity's sake. And there was one young black guy sitting there, and he said to me, lecturer, he said, are you just been trying to be a nice white liberal patronizing us blacks in the eyes of your compatriots by the way you're talking, or are you for real? If you're for real, have you ever been into Soweto? And there I stood, and to my shame, I said, no, I've never been into Soweto. And he said, well, then, if you mean what you say, you take me home this afternoon after lectures, and I'll, I'll show you what Soweto is like. And that, what happened is yeah, I, I went home with him deep down into Soweto, and he invited his compatriots from around the area, and they just drilled me. For the first time, they had a white man on their turf, in their home. And I tell you, it was like lancing a boil. Out came all the venom and all the anger. I was a symbol of the system that oppressed them. And uh, it was brutal. It was brutal. They asked me, do, uh, do you support the Release Mandela campaign? Who did you vote for in the last elections? Did you go to the... The, the, the white army, if you enter the South African Defense Force and served in the army, we're going to skip the border and join the resistance movement and etc. So eventually, I mean, I had no answers. I, I just kept saying, look, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, let's pray. What, what I know to do with is just to lead people to Jesus, lay hands on the sick, speak in tongues, and to pray. <laughs> I had no political theology. I had no theology of engagement with the oppressed, the poor, um, mm. that were under the structural side. So in any case, wow. to cut a long story short, when I drove out of Soweto, I just began to weep. I was just overcome. I felt like emotionally, psychologically, I had almost been raped. I just felt completely broken, and I, and I felt the Lord say, I actually pulled a car over on the highway, driving from Soweto to Joburg, just to release my emotions. And I felt the Lord say, uh, Alexander, well, for those of you who may know me as Bushy Fenter, was when I worked with John Wimber, my nickname was Bushy. But I changed it back to my birth name for a number of reasons. But I felt the Lord say, Alexander, where is your brother? And I felt, I, I realized uh, the question uh, from the, the story of Cain and Abel. And I said, God, now don't get political on me. Do you expect me? to be accountable for the blood of Cain, at least Abel, for the, the blood of, of black people on my hands. And the Lord said, yes, I want you to go find your brother. He has been killed at the hands of the white system. And you go and find your brother and reconcile and repent. And that began a journey of me going every week and then during the week into Soweto to seek reconcilia reconciliation, healing, transformation, and uh, a group emerged, an inadvertent church plant developed called Joweta, Johannesburg, Soweta. We called it Joweta, 
the prophetic renaming of the tale of two cities and speak the narrative, the new narrative of the kingdom where God doesn't see black and white, rich and poor, Johannesburg and Soweto as such. He sees one reconciled, united people, Joweta. And uh, so more and more white people came from Joburg with me into Soweto and the congregation, an interracial congregation grew in Soweto uh, that we called the Joweta Vineyard. And so I was involved in Soweto from 1984. That was a year, two years after we planted the Vineyard Church in Johannesburg in 1982. So from 1984 to 1996, 12 years of my life, I was involved in Soweto in pastoring uh, the Joweto Vineyard as an interracial reconciled witness to mm. divided society in South Africa. And wow. then... Uh, so after that, in 1996, I, I was called to pastor um, a vineyard back in the suburbs. And, and uh, so basically, long story short, I've been a vineyard pastor on a little bit of an interesting journey in life. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> Planting and pastoring churches. Um, and uh, as of last year, at least 2019, I handed over the last church that we planted uh, eight years prior to that, which was called Following Jesus Vineyard. Um, and I handed that over to a younger couple with a sense that my time of planting and pastoring and being the senior pastor is coming to, has come to an end. And I want to give myself in the remaining years to, to write a lot more books and to be available as a leadership consultant to work with leaders, pastors, and teams and basically to do spiritual formation. Mm, Probably wonderful. at the deepest level of my soul, to the extent that I know myself or don't know myself, <laughs> my passion is to become like Jesus. And therefore, uh, Christ-likeness and spiritual formation, uh, discipleship, or as Willard calls it, apprentice, uh, apprenticeship to Jesus is the deepest passion. And to be discipled, in Christ-likeness, in terms of the way Jesus would think, speak, and do in political engagement, in economic engagement, in societal engagement, in sexual engagement, in ecological engagement, in spiritual engagement. Because church and Christianity is not just about our spiritual life. It's about the whole of God's created reality. Because kingdom come will redeem the whole of the cosmos and not just save our souls to get to heaven, but God wants to save the whole of us and society and creation and renew it all so we rule and reign with him through the eternal ages over all God made. So uh, that is my passion, is discipleship to Jesus, spiritual formation in all the dimensions of the whole of life. Shalom, shalom, the Hebrew idea of shalom. And lastly, Luke, I'm almost preaching a sermon now. But my the most, yeah, okay. the, the most important uh, part of my story is uh, that I need to mention and my greatest claim to fame is I'm married to a beautiful uh, partner, wife, Jill Fenter, Jillian, and we have two adult children. Our oldest is um, Zander Fenter, and he's married to Samantha. 
and they he, he he has a PhD in ecological research and ecological ethics, and he works in a in a research um, institute in environmental affairs in Oslo, Norway, and we. And we have a daughter who is a clinical psychologist, and she's in New Zealand and works in a child psychiatric hospital in child psychology. So my wife and I live in, uh, in South Africa, and so we're on our own with our two children uh, who live internationally. But, yeah. mm. but the profound gift of intimacy in marriage and the, the love of family Learning to love and to be loved is the greatest gift God has given me outside of the gift of eternal life through his, his son and our King Jesus. Mm. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, it's it's so funny when you have uh, preachers or pastors on, you know, on a podcast because it's so easy to to go into sermon mode, which is every every pastor ever. Which is not the same as when I have like scholars, you know. <laughs> it's like you have to like get them to talk a little more. Uh, you know, I, I really like what you said though. Um, you know, in regard to uh, your your own experience of discovering, because um, I I've I've my observation about, uh, and I've lived all over the U.S. Um, I, I have lived in, you know, enough locations to have formed some some kind of some observations. And it seems like um, a lot of times when I've heard what I would call clear racist, you know, um, statements or even like just perspectives, you know, th I think that things that would be like systemically oppressive to people of color or, or even, um, amongst, you know, people of color against other people of color. It, it seems like a big, um, part of that oftentimes is just a lack of experience, lack of education, lack of traveling, you know, there's not, not a lot of interaction. And, um, you know, so your, your process of going into a part of, uh, of your country that you had never been in, um, to experience what they experienced is a, is I think a really powerful, part I, I i took my um my oldest daughter is 17 she's graduating um high school or i think primary school or secondary school over there whatever you call high school uh, and uh she i took her to to um kenya with me when she was uh eight um eight or nine years old and we we did a lot of work in one of the slums in nairobi and i i remember it being really overwhelming um emotionally because of what what we were seeing and experiencing, but it, she's never been the same ever since then, you know, and in, in, in a wow. good way. So, yeah, I wow. think there's something, something to what you said, but you, you talked a little bit about, you know, um, systemic oppression. Um, and I think that's a really maybe a helpful way for us to kind of go into this conversation a little bit, because I'm reminded of a, a um, when I was, it might've been one of the society for vineyard scholars gatherings when I was um, hanging out with uh, Derek, you know, another South African, Derek Morphew. And uh, he wrote a book uh, called South Africa and the powers behind, which I think is um, all about uh, the demonic oppression of apartheid. And um, he was just kind of talking about some of the, um, some of the spiritual warfare stuff around that, uh, where it really hit me that there that we're not just talking about um, political political things. I mean, there's definitely political and and there's ethical values, and all these conversations are oftentimes based on epistemology and philosophy of life. And there's a lot of really important things about that. But at the same time, too, the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians six that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but there are spiritual powers at work. Um, yeah. And you know, when you when you when you think about it in the U.S., I think we oftentimes, 
we have a it's really easy for us to think about that with nazi germany like like it's really easy for us to be like yeah the, clearly there were demons involved in that and then when it comes to apartheid it's it's for many americans i think you know those who maybe have have any information about that because there's obviously a lot of people that didn't even you know they they weren't alive or they don't know about the history but it seems pretty obvious that there was demonic oppression in that as well we're not so good at observing <laughs> demons in our own culture in our own political systems and um and so i want to i really wanted to kind of talk about that with you and i i was thinking a little bit more about that question of what's the role of the church when it comes to politics um because i i feel like you know pastors right now are in this situation where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't you know it's yeah. it's like we are we are constantly um it's it's so frustrating because like if you don't speak up you know, you're, you're complicit. Uh, if you do speak up, but you don't say the right things, you get canceled. Uh, mm -hmm. and so now <laughs> it's like pastors are like, do I say anything? And then, and then there's yeah. obviously, uh, the importance of listening too. you know, especially, uh, as a, as a primarily, you know, from, from, um, pastors who are white, you know, needing to spend time listening to people of color and, and hearing their experience and and their their perspective is, I think, really important, too. So I'd love to to pick your brain on that. Um, and, and I'm inspired because you and I have participated in some conversations online. Um, and whenever you write something, I almost always just go like, oh, yeah, that was it. That was everything I want to say. Alexander just said and you wrote a. Um, I'm going to call it a, a, uh, a diatribe. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a thorough biblical theology of the old Testament prophets though, the other day, uh, on Facebook and, and, and you fleshed out, um, I mean, it was one of the most thorough, um, biblical theologies of the old Testament prophets that I, I think I've ever seen. Um, it was like, I, I felt like I knew nothing about the Old Testament is what I really felt like. <laughs> it was like my my seminary experience, my MDiv failed me. Um, but I I so that's kind of when we started talking more about getting you on and you know getting this podcast on that we've been talking about for a while. But um, you know I guess help me out when when we think about that because I think you know you're you're kind of talking about the need for the church to speak truth to power and to have a prophetic voice. You know not just co-signing political parties and political platforms and politicians. So, but that's really complex, right? It seems like right now the church in, in not just the U S but I think it's, it's everywhere. It, it seems like there's this co-mingling with, um, with the church and politics. And it's been said numerous times by people that whenever you mix politics with the church, you get more politics. And, um, or, you know, when you mix uh, theology with politics, you get more, the more politics. And so, what are your thoughts about that? What do you see the church's role and how can it avoid, um, you know, those, those um, ditches, you know, of being too, too involved and not enough involved. I'd love to, love to hear you flesh that out a little bit. Yeah. So, so look, obviously big subject and uh, there's a lot to say. Uh, so help, help me Lord to be concise and, and also clear uh, but obviously, Luke, interrupt if I'm going too long because, um, uh, yeah, we have other questions, I'm sure. So for if me, Alexander, you just need to know if you talk about this for an hour, it's going to be okay. <laughs> 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 we have 
much time as you have. My, I can stay up late. You're just starting your day. I'm sure you have nothing else to do other than to uh, talk to me on my podcast. So, no, feel free. I mean, really, we'd love to hear it out. If we don't get to other other topics, that's okay because I have your email address and I'll just invite you to be on a future episode to talk about other things. So, please, feel okay. free. Go, go, go for it. And I'm honored to be on here. And if we talk again on the same platform at some time, a gift. Thank you. So, look, essentially, the church-state relationship is is really um, important, um, and it's really critical that it is taught from a kingdom of God theology framework, the church-state relationship, in order to disciple followers of Jesus in a kingdom worldview for political and societal engagement. If there are, are, are different theological paradigms that govern Christian thinking in terms of engagement in society. And I don't want to go through the various paradigms, but just briefly from a kingdom of God point of view that then becomes, I think, authentically biblical prophetic as opposed to often what is called prophetic on display, especially in the charismatic church that is very, very questionable. So for me, the Old Testament understanding and all ancient Near East cultures was that the religion and the faith was intermingled completely, was married and one with politics. There was no separation in the Old Testament in Israel and all the ancient Near East cultures in that sense of our modern understanding of separation between church and state. So because of the theology that from the Tower of Babel, the Hebrew understanding is God assigned angelic rulers to all the scattered nations, the Goyim, of which America, South Africa were all a part. And so each nation in the New Testament is called principalities and powers. And in the Old Testament, those, those spiritual powers became corrupt progressively and they incarnate themselves into a nation through the political rulers, the king especially. And so the character of the king, the ideology and the gods that are developed, the gods of the nations that are worshipped, is the means by which spiritual powers rule in and through the local earthly ruler and government. And so like in um, Isaiah, where it speaks of... Uh, the ruler of Babylon, it's always twofold, the spiritual power behind it and the earthly power through which the spiritual power rules. But in the coming of Jesus, and of course Israel was supposed to be ruled under the archangel Michael. The, Michael is God's prince that was overseeing Israel. But even Israel became c corrupt through false prophets by not repenting of her repeated sin. And God's ultimate judgment was to hand Israel over to um, spiritual enemies, to other gods, basically, to be in exile under the, under the domination of the powers, the other gods, Babylon, etc. But in the coming, and, and then, of course, the prophetic, the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophetic uh, vision of the coming of the king when God repents Israel, returns Israel from exile and gives her a new shepherd, a new covenant with a new heart and a new spirit. 
And this new shepherd actually will be God's Mashiach. So in the coming of Jesus, we see a shift and a separation between the spiritual powers that rule nations and um, the people of God per se, separation between church and state. So Jesus brings God's government, the rule and reign of God, and, and inaugurates it on earth within Israel to be taken through his people to all nations of the earth. And, of course, the classic statement is that the people of the kingdom are to live in, and, 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 and to model, live under and to model God's direct government through Jesus, King Jesus, and his outpoured spirit, as opposed to Caesar and living under Caesar. So the, um, the story of give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's, you know, Jesus must we give, must we pay taxes to Caesar. And then Jesus said, give me a coin. Whose image is this on the coin? Oh, that's Caesar's image. Well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, you're a citizen in this, this age reality of this nation. Pay your taxes and honor the leadership that is there, but give to God. What is God's? And I think what Jesus was saying is the image of God is imprinted on us as human beings. And through the coming of the rule and reign of God in Christ is redeemed and renewed in the new humanity. And so the church, the followers of Jesus, actually are the new humanity here in this age. We're living the future in the present and we're bringing and representing God's government in contrast to earthly government. So there's a tension set up and a separation between earthly government and the spirit and the powers behind them, whatever they may be, whether they have character or corruption. Um, and there is the people of God. Well, Martin Luther called it the kingdom on the right and the kingdom on the left. God rules his world and nations through the kingdom on the right, which is the kingdom of Jesus in and through the church. And the kingdom on the left, which is the, the ordained powers that God established, but that always progressively become corrupt because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the more, um, the longer a power remains in power and is not genuinely redeemed in the kingdom of God, its default setting is progressive corruption. And so the separation between Caesar and Jesus and the kingdom is the separation and the tension between the church and the state now in the new covenant. Yeah, and I, so I've thought about that with, you know, people who um, oftentimes will suggest that uh, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, which is, a you know, I mean, there's a whole tradition that is kind of gone down that road, right? The Anabaptist tradition has primarily kind of been less involved in the political realm, but I think yeah. it's really common. Um, I've heard it. Numerous people say, you know, Hey, pastors and churches shouldn't be involved in politics. And I'm really sympathetic to what they're getting at because I think sometimes the other extreme yeah. is that pastors are way too involved in politics, but there is yeah. nothing more political than Jesus is Lord because of the very yeah. thing you're saying. Like that was a that was a rejection of Caesar as a Lord, and the allegiance factor in the first century was being removed from emperor. Um, you know, at the time of the New Testament, um, you know, Nero, for example, and yeah. being being called to uh, a Jewish carpenter, which was so um, mm -hmm. upside 
down, right? It, it, like it doesn't make any sense for political power uh, structure. So yeah, I'm I'm tracking with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So so now I agree with you entirely. So um, the separation in the coming of the kingdom between the people of the kingdom who live out the the government of God as their first and primary allegiance in the context of their national earthly government. That, that does not mean being apolitical or transpolitical. It means politically engaged, but from a genuinely redeemed mindset that is free or relatively free from the dominant consciousness of the ideology of the earthly government. All earthly governments operate by political ideology. The American ideology for the last four years has been MAGA, make America great again. That's basically, all ideologies are represented in a slogan. Um, so if one does an analysis of, of what is the government of the day, what is the political party in government of the day, and who is the primary spokesperson of that party, of that government of the day, and what do they routinely, regularly say and implement and do, then you can discern the powers behind. And the powers behind becomes an ideology when it becomes a system that starts seeking self-worship, narcissistic and self-worship, and starts deceiving and lying and becomes corrupt. And then it becomes an, an slowly but surely a totalitarian system of thinking that is ideological loyalty that is seen in the extreme emotive responses when you lose rational dialogue. When you disagree with people who are under an ideological power, um, they experience disagreement as personal rejection and disloyalty to their hero. Their champion. They, I, it feels like you're talking about a country I'm familiar with. Um, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't know any country like that on earth. I do, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, you like you're describing the the experience of Americans, obviously. In a uh, for us here, we're just like, oh yeah, check the box, you know. Um, <laughs> so, but I think so, that's fascinating, though, because, you know, we again, we can see that in history, like very clearly in Hitler. Right. Because if anybody who's studied, I've read a number of uh, biographies uh, on Hitler and you see the demise. Right. I mean, uh, one cannot argue against the fact that um, Hitler was a genius in what he was able to, um, you know, collect so much power. I mean, he knew how to get the German people to buy into his, his political um, perspective. And then it, and then it demise because toward the end he was a madman. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of evidence now that he was, you know, coked up and I mean, really doing a lot of yeah. crazy drugs and, and, uh, and we have no problem seeing the demonic um, inspiration behind that. Um, yeah. and I think for me, you know, I've had concerns about, um, President Trump for for a, a while. I, I've not been a, a huge fan of Trump, mostly because of his tone. Um, you know, I, not so much uh, always his policies per se. I mean, many of his policies I've not been a fan of. But as a conservative leaning person, it's you know it's been mostly his uh, his just the the values and the morality of of him. But it, I think most conservatives that I've talked to in the past 
week have all seen like really similar to what you're talking about an implosion and we've kind of seen it full force the narcissism and and in a lot of the uh challenges um with his um character i guess would be the best way yeah, to put it yeah no no absolutely i think that the the um, the the separation of church state and the role of the church as the prophetic community of people that model the kingdom and live the kingdom in contrast to secular society and the government of the day therefore the church is the conscience of society and the conscience of government in the sense that um, we represent the ethics and the thinking of king jesus and are free from the dominant consciousness of the ideology of the day, and that we engage it whenever the ideology and the praxis does things consistent with kingdom ethics, like um, abortion in terms of biblical hermeneutics and kingdom ethics. To justify abortion, you'd have to become very liberal in your hermeneutic, yeah. and you succumb to cultural um, pressure. And likewise, same-sex marriage and same-sex genital sexual engagement, you'd have to have a cultural hermeneutic that is dressed up as biblical hermeneutics to justify that. So when the government of the day implements policies and takes actions that are consistent with biblical kingdom conscience and ethics and values, the church supports it and blesses it. When the government of the day implements policies and thinking and behavior that is unethical or goes against the character of the kingdom, the church prophesies and says that's wrong. And if necessary, resists it. And if necessary, we do nonviolent resistance by civil disobedience if required. So under apartheid South Africa, there are a whole lot of expectations in the ethos um, in South Africa, as well as in the laws that I just went against because uh, uh, without asking permission, because I was living the kingdom in prophetic challenge to the, the status quo. So in terms of America and um, Trump, I think we have to, we have to say that um, Biblical kingdom evaluation of all leadership and political society, in my opinion, does not start with, with beliefs and policies. It starts with character and then beliefs and policies. Jesus taught, you know, a good person from a bad person, a good tree from a bad tree by the fruit. And the fruit reveals the root. And what comes out the mouth routinely which forms the attitudes and the behavior, is what reveals what has formed the heart. It's actually spiritual formation. We are all, we are, we've all been spiritually formed one way or another. So when you listen to anyone long enough, what routinely and predictably comes out their mouth reveals the formation of their heart. And if it is continual serial lying, if it is continual seeking to meet ego needs of greatness and adulation, and if it is um, bullying people, if it is manipulation and control, if it is racism, if it is misogyny, if it is sexist attitudes, um, the, the longer you listen, the more, the more a person you know, 
in the kingdom, kingdom thinking is the ultimate test God can give to us is to entrust power to us. Power brings out character for better or for worse. People of good character use power, and it's seen progressively in the longer they exercise power. They use power to genuinely serve in deep humility and self-sacrificing love, the least of the least, and they build from the bottom up, as Jesus did. People are given power if their character their character is revealed if they start using and abusing power to manipulate and control and enforce their agenda and create ideological loyalty to for their own ego of self-worship. I think um, that's that's the challenge I think we're having now, you know, um in our in our contextual setting because I one one thing is it it feels very much so that that's happening on both sides of our political aisle. You know, there's definitely like this allegiance factor where it's like you either a hundred percent Democrat or a hundred percent Republican, and there's there's no um, in between. You know, being a being a center right or independent ish type person is you you're you're hated by them all. Like I find myself being too conservative for the progressives and too progressive for the conservatives. You know, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of the. There's this great book by James Mumford um, called "Vexed," um, and it's a fantastic book about the challenge of American political. Um, I think just American politics in general, but it's also the discourse too, because there's such a co-mingling for things. Like I find myself, um, you know, um, with abortion. I mean, yeah, I, I would hold to a a. Um, I guess a traditional, cons- you know, uh, conservative, whatever you want to call it, but the perspective that um, that life begins at conception, and I um, and I I think that um, abortion is is wrong. It's I think it's a terrible thing. Um, while also wanting to um, you know be very um, compassionate for mothers and other victims who have had Absolutely. to succumb to that, while also. Yeah. Um, you know, um, wanting to see immigration reform, but also my pro-life value fleshes out into people who are alive right now and taking care of them as much as we can. And, and I really struggle with the death penalty. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm probably a just war theory guy a little bit, um, you know, (laughs) to some degree, but I, but uh, ideally I, I just struggle with making that decision. And even though I can understand the role of government and all this stuff too, but that's, yeah. that's a challenge right now, because I think what we have right now is trying to pick this lesser of two evils and really trying to determine which is the, what is the most important value? Because it feels like right now, a lot of, um, especially more progressive perspectives would really be, um, they have a problem with conservatives who hold to um, Republican ideology just because of abortion. So there's a lot of naysayers ab- about one issue voting. You know, it's like that's not cool now. Uh, yeah. And in many ways, I'm I'm sympathetic to that. You know, like like I think that there's got to be more to our decision making. On the other hand, my observation right now about uh, progressives is that it's a hundred percent about. Um, about LGBTQ rights, or oftentimes it's a hundred percent all about um, race and, and ethnic um, reconciliation, or or what oftentimes feels um, like it for some people. This is not my argument per se, but it feels like it's being forced on them, you know, with affirmative action and things like that. So yeah. it just 
it's really complicated. So, you know, in our environment, um, which I don't know the South African environment, but I know the other countries oftentimes have a lot of different political parties to choose from. In our environment, there's two, basically. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. how do we how do we do it? You know, yeah. because I, I I'm thinking more so because I I I can understand why there's a lot of followers of Jesus who who really struggle with Trump as a person. They don't like him. They, you know, they never have, um, but they also, you know, would, would hold to a conservative worldview and ideology. And so that's why they, they voted for them. So I don't per se think that every one of those people is racist, uh, which I know is controversial for some people, but I don't think that they're, you know, voting for Trump because they want a racist in, in, uh, in power. Um, Yeah. Just like there's, there are some people who really cannot they, they don't agree with abortion. Um, you know, they, they are really concerned about, um, you know, free speech, um, or, you know, radically progressive liberalism, but they also, you know, couldn't vote for somebody like Trump. So they, they voted for, uh, Biden, you you know, like I'm sympathetic to those challenges because I think they, they're real. And I know a lot of people who are struggling with that. So what's, what's the kingdom way forward? You know, how do we, how do we, keep these tensions what's what's the way to i guess you know um remain vexed as james mumford talks about but like have some sort of uh i guess guidance on that what would you uh what would you say it's good look look i've not read um james mumford's book vexed i i i i'm aware of it i must actually get a copy and 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 read it but uh kingdom people who genuinely work in kingdom thinking uh, do are people who are who live in tension in deep tension, and we are very grieved and vexed in our soul at the context of what's happening. At the same time, we are resilient. We are people of resilient faith and hope, who engage courageously in love for for societal transformation. So um, I come back to this idea that church-state relationship in the new covenant in under King Jesus is that we um, have a critical engagement in society. We, we must refuse and cannot be in bed with any political party. If the church and the Christian constituency basically is in bed with a political party, we, it's as old Christendom going back to Constantinople, the um, Constantine, the emperor, who made Christianity the official religion of the state. Um, and that still operates in many constituencies. So we need critical distance from power in order to engage with relative objectivity, with kingdom thinking, and we bless what is good and we confront what is bad. And in the, and in the Republican Party, there's a mix of good and bad. And in the Democratic Party, there's a mix of good and bad. And so critical discerning engagement is important. But the third way between republicanism and and, uh, the democratic way or ideology is, of course, being peacemakers, the way of the kingdom. And so for me, my observation, Luke, for what's happened in the United States, and just to say on a personal emotional note, Mm. I tell you, I weep, I weep, I weep for what's going on there and what has happened this past week. For me, what happened this past week is actually simply the full fruit of the progressive development of an ideological system that many have called Trumpism. 
because it, he drew all the attention to himself and all the adoration to himself and the ideological loyalty was to himself personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we saw the full fruit of, of, of that on Capitol Hill. It's yeah. unmarked for everyone to see. So there is deep, deep pain on both sides. Yeah. And so I would say that uh, um, from a Christian point of view, to for the church to somehow repent from being ideologically captured by both sides of the divide in the U.S., because it, it's as divided as it ever was in U.S. history now, mm -hmm. and to dialogue and find reconciliation within the church among Christians in order to become that alternative community who are peacemakers, who engage in society as reconcilers. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about that as being the, the, the followers of the kingdom are genuine shalom makers. They make peace between opposing sides as salt and light. Christians are not called to take over society and to make a Christian nation with a Christian government. That mm. is not kingdom theology. That's post-millennial reconstructionism. That is the Seven Mountains teaching. Um, you can name forms of dispensationalism, Christian Zionism, various evangelical frames of, of theological work that's been subconsciously at work behind the prophecies in supporting mm -hmm. what I've called Trumpism, because mm -hmm. the, the ideology that has emerged has become uh, an ism. Um, and as you say, uh, it's easy to identify in Nazi Germany. It's easy to identify in apartheid South Africa. It's very difficult to identify when you've been raised in an environment where you are so deeply conditioned that you cannot see. A yeah. fish. That's, that, that's a very important, I think, um, thing for people to, you know, hear, I think, in this uh, podcast. Because, I mean, I, I really do... Um, experience it from both sides, whereas I think the radicalization of both worldviews, both ideologies is upon us. You know, I mean, I've had conversations with um, with hardcore Trump, you know, supporters as well as extremely progressive liberals, and they they have the same unreasonableness um, uh, when it comes to approaching any of these topics. You know, they're, they're the same people, they just have different color clothing one's red and one's blue you know but it's the yeah. same the same unreasonable um unwilling to engage other perspectives or engage um you know in a critical evaluation and my observation is that and this is the part that has really concerned me about the the church is we've created echo chambers and and, it, and there's a problem with that because we're not at all listening to other people's perspectives or being able to evaluate our our own perspectives because we're so um, we're so dominated by one one particular issue or or ideology, and sadly, right now, it, it, I think the predominant feeling is one of anger. People are so angry right now, which um, is, uh, as you know, in, in, in teachings of scripture is generally not a great place for human beings to live at because we don't generally do a very good job of being angry and not sinning, <laughs> you know, like, like it's possible, but it seems like most of the time we, we really struggle with that. And, 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 and I think that that's a, um, you know, I guess, cause I, I guess with the radicalization, 
why is it happening? What's the cultural moment from your perspective um, is why are people being radicalized, um, you know, for whatever perspective? And I, and I really do want to, you know, like think about it cri- cri- critically in the sense of it seems like yeah. there's people who are being radicalized to ultra progressive liberal, um, you know, um, ideology. And then there are people who are being radicalized by what you'd call Trumpism. I think even behind that is, uh, is this idea of Christian nationalism, which is oh, yeah. a, a whole nother, you know, topic. And you touched on with Constantine, Constantine, because it goes back to the Roman empire under Constantine, you know, those seeds being planted. Yeah. It's so counter. And this is the, this is the part for anybody who reads scripture. These things are so, um, so, out of sorts with with the teachings of scripture. I mean, it it really is like grieving in that regard. I think as a pastor, where I'm I'm wondering if if followers of Jesus or people who check that box Christian are actually engaging in the teachings of scripture, um, especially when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Matthew five through seven. I mean, you know what's been called the Constitution of the Kingdom, or I always call it Jesus's greatest sermon he ever preached. Um, you know, it's. It's, so why is it why are, why why do we see such radicalization? What what do you think is the the cultural moment or what's been leading up to this and and uh, you know why is it that way? Well, I think that um, it's uh, it's part of as, as I said the deep conditioning of partisan thinking and opposing ide- ideologies uh, and. An ideology is a belief system that justifies group interests and promotes group interests over against another group. And in its mature form, it demonizes the other group as the enemy mm-hmm. and therefore loses all ability to objectively dialogue for self-adjustment. So mm-hmm. I have a model, uh, Luke, that I teach from uh, the idea of the word of God, the logos, Um, Jesus in scripture that can perhaps help the church. And this is what we did in under apartheid in Joweta, that white Christians from Johannesburg came into Soweto and met with black Christians. And that encounter, that ecumenical encounter, de-ideologized, we mutually de-ideologized one another by meeting the opposite other. So my model goes like this. God sent his, his word um, into history in, in incarnate form. And Jesus represented God, brought the kingdom. But in bringing the kingdom, the, the, the mission of the word was to go into the world and draw people into the kingdom from all diverse opposites. And so Jesus had a zealot, a right-wing patriot nationalist, <laughs> and he had... Uh, a, a collaborator sell out to the Roman system, Matthew. He had the ideological opposites in his little community. He had women, which was unheard of, and men. So the, the, the word of God evangelizes um, the kingdom of God into all the opposites in society. Yeah. And in so doing, actually is enculturated into those various spectrums and kinds of people, and dies. The word of God actually dies. But then it comes back to life and resurrection because the word of God gave its life in self-giving love to all in death. 
But then Jesus rose again, and the word of God comes back to life in the ecumenical confrontation of the kingdom. Because as the word um, missionizes and infiltrates all cultures and all different kinds of people, it incarnates itself in those cultures and becomes progressively ideologized by those cultures mm. and then dies. But the ecumenical confrontation is the resurrection of the de-ideologized word of God. So when you get opposites, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, African-Americans and Caucasian-Americans, and Asian-Americans and Mexicans in a room together, on the basis and the foundation of the unconditional acceptance of Christ. Because you're a Christian, Luke, and I'm a Christian, and we both believe that, that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. That is the basis of the gospel. So that as God unconditionally accepts me in Christ, no matter what my baggage is, so mm. I've got to unconditionally accept you in Christ, no matter what your baggage is. Then when we come together as opposites, but on the basis of being brothers and sisters in God's kingdom. And we sit down and then we start telling our stories, not doing Bible study to prove who's right and wrong, but what's your story, Luke, from living in your context? What's my story from living in, let's say, Compton, <laughs> mm. uh, Greater Los Angeles, <laughs> as an African-American growing up in the ghetto, as it were? Um, yeah. As we do our storytelling of how we experience and know Jesus within our context, suddenly the blinkers fall off my eyes that, ah, that's what it was like in Soweto. That's how you experience the government of South Africa of the day. Mm. That's your perception of white Christians, that we didn't love you and come and fight for your justice. And then when they hear ah, my story, let's say I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, and when I share my story, why uh, suddenly we start seeing each reality through each other's eyes and we start de-ideologizing. So storytelling is a, in a narrative theology, is a, is a profoundly biblical reality. Yeah. To start off telling stories, as we tell stories on the basis of unconditional mutual acceptance in the love of Christ, because we are brothers and sisters in the same church, in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So we created in the local church discussion groups. We had in Joetta, we had home groups. We had 12 home groups of, we said, not more than six to seven people of blacks and whites, men and women, rich and poor, old and young, all the mm -hmm. diverse opposites. And we had a 12-week program of storytelling to tell our life stories starting from our grandparents and our roots, going to birth and upbringing, going through our cultural, ideological conditioning as we grew up, realization, how we came to know Jesus, etc. Then the next step after mutual storytelling is to sit with an open Bible with some relatively skilled leader to facilitate a mediated conversation to take it further into discovering together like the Sermon on the Mount. And what does kingdom theology, kingdom thinking, help us to debaggage us from our ideological, cultural, and racial conditioning to take it further from storytelling? Storytelling establishes the basis of trust. Yeah. And emotional goodwill. 
where I have heard your pain and you've heard my pain. And I understand why you think the way you think and came to vote for the way that you voted. Mm. And why you now understand and accept me and you don't judge me and label me, but you accept me with my pain and my baggage. And on that basis of, of mutual emotional goodwill and trust through storytelling, we can start examining our beliefs around the word of God and establish a kingdom framework of thinking that then repents us from ideological loyalty to either side and actually makes us the third way in America, the way of Jesus and the kingdom that prophesies to both powers and yeah. identifies the elements of good on both sides and the elements of bad on both sides from yeah. a united reconciled church. If mm. we are the reconciled community, that is called to the ministry and message of reconciliation to reconcile society. We only have the spiritual authority to be effective in that to the extent we ourselves are reconciled. If the church is divided as America is divided, we are a copy of secular society and not a model of the kingdom. We're going to reconcile the church first as the instrument of reconciliation in a divided, deeply hurting Mm -hmm. society that in some ways as some prophets have prophesied is on the edge of civil war yeah yeah so so the church there is a tremendous tremendous historical responsibility in a kairos moment on the church in america right now for wow. it to literally humble itself repent by go find your brother because mm -hmm. His blood is on your hands. Go reconcile with your brother and your sister. Create yeah. discussion groups of the opposites in society for the sake of de-ideologizing one another through telling your story of Jesus, how you experience your life with yeah. Christ. And suddenly eyes like, are open, hearts yeah. are softened. It's right. And then there's goodwill to take it a step further and talk mm -hmm. about theology of engagement from a united, reconciled yeah. theology. Theology is different to ideology. Theology is not ideology. Theology can be used ideologically to serve group interests. The kingdom does not serve any group interests. The kingdom serves God's agenda. So mm -hmm. theology is different to ideology. And we must keep, the keep them separate. So, so I talk about the missional dynamic of the word that came into the world, infiltrated all cultures and different people, but in so doing was inculturated by them, and yeah. the word dies. The word is resurrected through the ecumenical dynamic of the word of God that brings together the whole oikumeni, the whole body of Christ, mm -hmm. in, in a fellowship of unconditional acceptance on the basis of the blood of Christ. And in that fellowship of unconditional acceptance, we find one another around the story of Jesus, the way you've experienced Jesus and life and the way I have. And yeah. that deep ideologizing process brings back to life the word of God and truth emerges as objective truth mm. and community-tested truth as opposed to ideologized conditioned truth, your truth and my truth. What you're saying about how um, us – uh, the the followers of Jesus sharing their own stories um, about 
I think both their experience uh, in life, but also their experience of coming into the kingdom, um, it re-radicalizes you or it, it unradicalizes you perhaps from other ideology, but re-radicalizes you around the kingdom and the cross. And that's, that's a fascinating uh, way of looking at it. Cause I was just thinking about how um, I, I watched this video recently um, with these two Christian pastors who had ex- like the most diametrically opposed position at, like you could have. And they just had this conversation about how they arrived to their perspective and they shared their stories, but it was done in this really relational way where they were, you know, kind of, Hey, this is how I was raised and I was raised this way. And this is why I believe this, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just thought about, uh, as you were sharing about how that could be such a beautiful thing as we hear. Yeah. As we hear um, people from different perspectives, you know, that's, what's been so fun in my life. You know, when I think about, um, about having conversations with people over the last, you know, my, my, my adult life is just hearing people's experiences and their, and their perspectives um, has helped me a lot. I mean, cause I think that's one, one reason why I have a real hard time with the ultra, um, you know, extremism of both perspectives right now, because it does exactly what you're saying. It writes off the other per- person, you know, the, the left writes off anybody who's a Republican or conservative and the conservatives and Republicans oftentimes write off, write anybody who's on the left. And, and I found that to be really unhelpful because I think as I've had conversations, I now understand that there's people who voted for, um, whatever, politician they voted for and they and they have valid concerns or questions and sometimes they might be wrong but but it's important to understand why they come come to those conclusions and if we demonize them then we then we miss the opportunity to to grow and to and to be able to engage and yeah it's just really really sad um no i i think what you've shared is really really helpful um you know, when thinking about politics, because it's it's so complicated. But what I hear you saying over and over again, and it's you know so obvious from your writings, is is as the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus um, inaugurated at His first coming, and something we look forward to being consummated in the future, is such a significant event and reality for you that that's the only way the church can really engage in these conversations is to come with the kingdom perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so perhaps one last comment is to, is to say God has given us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And as people of the kingdom, we really have to find one another um, in, in whatever opposite views we may have for the sake of God's integrity, the witness of God's name, and for the sake of deeply divided and angry society. Mm-hmm. And just to say... Um, the other last point maybe to emphasize, Luke, I cannot personally emphasize enough the importance in terms of thinking. You know, I wrote a paper in 2019 in South Africa. There were national elections. And we have, we've come out of 10 years of living under President Jacob Zuma, who was systematically corrupt in his character and gave spiritual permission to corruption at all levels of society to loot, steal, and to rape the country economically. So we've had astronomical levels of corruption um, in our country. And when he came to power in 2010, when he was voted in, I actually wrote a paper there to say a dark spirit is taking over this country. And the reason is this. My understanding of biblical theology beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 17, is the first mention in the Bible 
of the criteria for appointing a king. Moses prophetically writes about the time when Israel will have a king. And he explains the criterion for choosing a king. And it starts off character, character, character. Then it goes to policy. <laughs> and then it goes to performance and track record. <laughs> People put policy, policy, policy. They yeah. just absent character. So as long as a guy is pro-life and is anti-same-sex marriage, but lies routinely and seeks self-worship in a completely neurotic fashion, um, you can excuse all character because he's got wonderful good policies. Yeah. And you and I know, um, Luke, as pastors, I can preach the best theology. Truly, I can preach the best, purest theology. But if mm -hmm. I'm exposed for being a kind of leader in my local church that routinely lies, that, that lusts off the woman, that secretly may have sexual encounters, that um, is corrupt in my character, you won't excuse that for because I'm a great, have the best, purest theology. The highest criteria of any president, of any pastor, of any leader in business, in civil society, spiritual leadership, character, character, character. That is the primary gate through which spiritual powers operate. Secondarily is ideology. Thirdly is implementation and performance and track record. And you see the fruit of a person and their character and of a system only over years because fruit takes a few years to develop, but the fruit does not lie, Jesus says. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's not Biden and Democrats are not Caesar. Trump and the Republicans are not Caesar. Jesus is king. Jesus mm -hmm. is Lord. And, and you rightly said that proclamation of the early church was incredibly political and subversive in their day. Yeah. Acts chapter 17, verse 6, at Thessaloniki, they accused Paul and the guys. They said, the people who proclaim another Caesar have come here, and they've turned the world upside down by proclaiming another Lord, another Caesar. Mm, and right. so Jesus called King Herod. When King Herod sent his officials to Jesus on the road in Luke 13 to say, Herod wants to see you. He said, go tell that fox. Jesus called the the Roman puppet king, Jewish king Herod, a fox. Mm -hmm. That is unbelievably derogatory to speak of your president as a fox. But in Semitic usage of calling that name, says that Herod is a deceiver predator of his own people, yeah, used by the powers behind of the Roman occupation, the Roman occupying army, because mm -hmm. it's a spiritual ideological power that's working through him, and I have no qualms of naming his character. In Semitic Hebrew understanding, when you give a name, you describe character. And right. Jesus had no problem in doing that. He engaged politically. He called it for what it was prophetically. And so we need to, we're in the tradition of Jesus and the Hebrew prophets. Mm -hmm. And we, character is of the highest order of evaluation and criteria. Mm -hmm. And then um, ideology, as in policies, belief systems, etc. So yeah. that's my that's my class. So I don't trust 
people if I find out that they regularly lie. I don't trust people if they bully others, manipulate to control. Mm -hmm. I, they can have the best policies in the world. I immediately start standing back. And I say, here is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Here is a big problem. I don't respect it at all. And that has been massively omitted in the evangelical church in America. Yeah. Over the past four years. And we've have given, paid the for it. We've given up. I mean, that's we've given up ground, you know. Um, and I and I think all the excuses in the world have really made it difficult um, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people who are unbelievers because they see that. I mean, I've had numerous non-Christians ask me, like, what's up with Christians, um, you know, supporting this this type of person? Um, you know, and, and the common evangelical response is, well, I don't look for people. I don't want a pastor to be my president or, you know, all these really stupid, ridiculous ways of, of dismissing it. But and, and I've come to the point now where you can't you cannot reason with people who have not use reason to get to the perspective they're in, right? You can't use reason to get them out of a corner that they just, you know, never, ever thought through. And that's, that's one of the challenges and also the reality of spiritual forces at work, uh, why it's been helpful to think about that. You know, the battle's not in, not a flesh and blood battle. It's a spiritual battle. Um, yeah. you know, we need to, um, work hard to expose some of these bad ideologies and bad thinking on both, both I'm sides. Both. Uh, yeah, everywhere. I mean, any any non-kingdom ethic or value. So, no, it's really good. I, I, um, I really, you know, look forward to, I think, um, having more conversations with you on, on topics like this, too. So I want to uh, really quickly, before we wrap this up, um, you, your book, Doing Spirituality, which is a completely different subject than uh, politics, but not really, because you're laying out a uh, a way of life that is it's really about discipleship. I mean, that's really uh, the book is a lot about discipleship and formation. Um, you know, and this podcast um, I've said is I've I've tried to at times be focused on the intersection between um, I, I think you know um, charismatic theology, pneumatology, anything with the Holy Spirit, um, miss, missiology. Um, I think also an emphasis on ecclesiology because I'm, I, I consider myself an ecclesial practitioner. That's my nice way of saying pastor. Uh, and then, but also exploring sacramentality and, you know, you and I have had Twitter conversations about the different streams of the church and, and wanting to pull in from those, um, do you think that in the, you know, your experience in the past in the vineyard, you know, working with John Wimber in the early 80s, um, do you see, I guess, do you see that um, as being a development, um, you know, within the vineyard or within certain vineyard, um, you know, I guess, communities that sacramental theology and maybe more awareness of the liturgical traditions or spiritual formation, uh, you know, some of those is that is that happening in South Africa as well? Is there more, um, I guess, you know, interest in that? Because I think for a long time in the U.S. there were many vineyard churches that didn't celebrate the Eucharist very often, you know, because it just wasn't yeah. like all the thing. Uh, what's the environment like over there in the charismatic world? So again, Luke, this is so good you ask this, and it's very it's an important subject, and to talk more about it would be of of great value. But here in my experience, in my context, and my perception of what's happening in the broader 
international context is, yes, very clearly there is within evangelical charismatic circles increasingly a hunger for um, sacramental liturgical engagement. And I think the reason is because the history of spirituality is that through the Protestant overreaction, the reformational overreaction against Catholic legalism and anti-religious ritual, um, and then later the emergence of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, and even within Vineyard, um, you know, Wimber was a pastor with the Society of Friends, the Quakers, yeah. and then and then started Calvary Chapel and Vineyard. And in a way, Vineyard, as it develops as a movement, is maturing and undergoing adjustment through self-reflection and growing into broader areas of kingdom understanding updated through theologians like N.T. Wright, Craig Keener, and also Jesus Research Scholars with a broader understanding of the kingdom, but equally with a deepening spiritual awareness of formation through returning back to the liturgical um, tradition of the church. So through Dallas Willard, as an example, he's one guy that God's used, in fact, probably a primary guy, to bring classic spiritual disciplines mm -hmm. back into evangelical churches, popularized through Richard Foster, who was Willard's student and learned from Willard, who wrote his book, Celebration of Discipline, before Willard wrote his other books. Mm -hmm. But the sense of overdevelopment of rational, apologetic, evangelical Protestant theology and the the deep underdevelopment of spiritual formation because of an overreaction against Catholicism mm -hmm. and liturgical sacramental spirituality. We are we are spiritual, spiritually formed dwarfs, <laughs> and we are theological mental giants. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there is this hunger for Christian mysticism. There is this hunger for spiritual engagement. We see it in the Signs and Wonders movement, mm -hmm. of which Vineyard was at the forefront. The hunger for spiritual encounter. But within Vineyard context and charismatic context, it is limited to the ecstatic spirituality of spiritual uh, manifestations and power. It needs to open up to the contemplative, mystical, spiritual tradition, which is the other side of the coin of ecstatic spiritual encounter. And this liturgical, sacramental uh, understanding, spirituality, and experience of, of creation becoming God's icon, that every bush we see actually is ablaze with the glory of God if we just have eyes to see, and mm -hmm. that uh, symbols of bread and wine. So if I to hold my camera up here, right next to me on the carpet, I've got a little, I've got bread and wine, a bottle of juice, I've got two candles, Jesus is my rabbi, my prophet, and my king. And Jesus, literally, when he was alive, the historical Jesus, every Friday night at Kedush, he, had, he lit two candles. They lit two candles, mm -hmm. the light of creation and the light of Torah. And the early first followers of Jesus, who were all Jewish, 
they transformed those two symbols and said Jesus is the light of new creation and he's the light of the Messianic Torah, the fulfillment of the Torah, the new covenant. So I light two candles every morning. I break. I take bread and wine every morning. I have a bottle of anointing oil and I anoint myself. I, I have a little card on which I have the names of my family and extended family and the elders and leaders of which now I'm a part. And that's my Trinitarian community. Because it all happens within the Trinity and the community of the primary belongings that I have, responsibility for which I carry and I bring into God's presence daily when I have my time with Jesus. So, mm -hmm. honestly, look, if you get me talking about this, yeah, uh, there, I'm coming out of the closet. There is a deeply yeah. sacramental person who lives inside me who longs for liturgical symbols and mystical encounter. As I say, you you sound like you've you've definitely um, been working on this. But I, I got that when I read you know doing spirituality. It was like I read it and I was like, oh yeah, this guy's a sacramental charismatic. <laughs> he, he might he might be in disguise, but he's definitely on on my team or I'm on his team, whatever you want to say. But yeah, I think that's what we're gonna do. Um, you know, Alexander, I'd love to have you on uh, an, another episode in the near future, and we could talk more about um, maybe that journey um, into the sacramental world you know um because i think you're right i'm i'm finding more and more people who are who are interested in that you know especially in, in a post-modernity type of environment where there's a lot of post or people who don't have christian backgrounds who aren't throwing out the baby with the bathwater. there's there's questions they're asking and i'm and i've found that the liturgical traditions have a lot of the answers and rhythms and habits and framework um to help them in their discipleship so that we'll have to do that for sure um, I, I'm so grateful for your time. Um, you know, I, I've been a huge fan of obviously your work for so long and it's great to finally have a, a, a more extensive conversation. Uh, Thank what you. are you working on writing right now? What are we looking forward? You know, what's, what's the next? Well, yeah. So I, I don't know if you're aware, but I've written a, a book on Psalms called praying the Psalms volume one and volume one is learning to pray. It is 12 a 12-week program of 12 meditations and 12 songs. And I've started work on volume two called Praying Our Challenges and Our Choices. It'll be 12 songs. But I am quite heavily pregnant with doing leadership. Mm. Um, yeah. I, 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 I do in my doing series, doing church, doing reconciliation, doing healing, doing spirituality, I think probably the last more they're all like textbooks. So mm -hmm. I, I really feel I need to write uh, a, a substantial work on a kingdom understanding of leadership at all levels of society, not just spiritual leadership. That'd be great. Um, and I need so because I've done, so this has been the book I've used with leadership team development um, for, I'm going to say, I don't know, almost 20 years now. I've used this book multiple times uh, with teams. And it's the book that I have everybody read. Uh, so it'd be great to have one on leadership too. So you need to do that. So, yeah, so, so that's what, and I've got, I've got all the notes in my computer that I just want to draw together this year quickly. On, uh, I did a whole 16 week series, simply following Jesus. Mm. Um, uh, it's all from different angles yeah. of, um, it, it'll be different, but complementary to doing spirituality. So I want to bring that together as a book called 
um, being the beloved, following Jesus in the dance of love, oh, living great. a love essentially. So great. yeah, so I've I've got a few things I've got to work on. <laughs> Awesome. Well, and for any of our listeners and our viewers, if you click the description, you'll see uh, links to all of Alexander's books, uh, as well as website and social media and all that stuff. And so, Alexander, thank you so much for your time, uh, for being on the show. It's really meant a lot to me. It's been great having you. Thank you so much, Luke, and all the listeners. It's been an honor, and God bless you guys. And we, I am praying for the USA at this time, and especially for pastors May God give you the grace you need in this critical time that, and the wisdom and the courage to love and to think and to lead as Jesus did. God yeah. bless you. We, we appreciate that. Yeah, to everyone listening, watching, we appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can check out my website, lukegarity.com, for writings, and I'm also on social media. would love to interact with you. God bless all of you. Have a great day or night or morning or evening, depending on what you are doing right now. Thank you.